I'm going to teach, and I'm going to teach on a verse, and it was going through my head the entire time we were in Perry. We were spent, but this was going through my mind. And so if you'll turn, if you will, to the book of James. We're, We're going to have a short study on two verses at the end of the book of James. And it's James chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 26 to 27 because it's just going to be, like I said, a a small lesson that I, I hope will be helpful for all of us. But it says this, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Verse 27, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. One of the first books that I ever heard taught was the book of James. I was newly saved and we were in a Sunday school class at our church in in San Diego in El Cajon and the layperson that taught our class went through the book of James. I've still got the Bible with notes in it from that lesson and it stuck with me. And James was the first book that I taught through in Faith Builders. In fact, it was the first book I preached through in my time here at Lakeside. When I candidated at Lakeside, I preached a message from the book of James. James has had a profound impact on me. And one of the things that's so significant is the reason that James is in the Bible. One of the particular phraseologies that is very familiar is at the very beginning Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. It's talking about the difficulties of life. But when you get farther in the book, James says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And that's really the precursor and the context that we come to the end of chapter 1 and we find these verses. James is very concerned about believers not deceiving themselves. He wants them to be genuine. He wants them to be real. He wants them to live a life consistent with the changed heart of being born again. It's interesting because he talks about, James talks about what Steve talked about, sovereignty. If you look in chapter 1 verse 18, just look up a few verses. It says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So, so James clearly talks about God doing the work, God being the agent of our salvation, but by the same token, he makes it clear that there are a lot of people who are deceiving themselves. That's why in verse 22, and I, I already quoted, but prove yourselves doers of the word. In other words, it's not enough to listen and hear, we have to apply it, and that has great applicability. In fact, his illustration in that verse is applicable to a church like ours because the idea of a hearer is someone who attends professional lectures. They enjoyed listening. Pastor Steve is a phenomenal teacher. He is an incredible teacher. People can come and listen and you can listen to him. James' whole point is that's a good thing, but don't think that's the end of the game. Because if you're not doing what you're hearing, you're deluding yourself. And as a result, the rest of the book, quite often, he's really emphasizing that same point. Are you a doer of the word? And that's exactly what he's doing in the verses that we're going to cover today. 
In fact, as he's transitioning, he's going to talk about a lot of things. He gives instructions. He's really giving us some objective markers of whether we actually are doers of the word. And that's what I want to use as the springboard and the framework for the lesson today. These are just three simple proofs of whether you're a doer in the word. You can ask yourself these questions. Do I do these things? If you do, praise the Lord, excel still more. But if you struggle in these areas, I would just encourage you to be careful. So I'm going to quickly go through this. We don't have a lot of time. But the first proof that you're a doer of the word is this. You control your tongue. You control your tongue. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. It's a very powerful statement. It's saying that someone that doesn't do these things, their religion accomplishes nothing. It will not do anything for them. And he's talking to religious people. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious... They think they're on the right page. They're doing the religious things. I love my hometown, and I've said before, and I don't mean this, it's, most towns are this way, but I said, everyone is a Christian in my hometown. There's just not many believers. They think themselves to be religious. That describes most of America. They think, I'm okay with God, and yet James says, I can just start out with a simple test. Do you bridle your tongue? In other words, do you control what flows out of your mouth? The imagery that he uses simply is of control. He uses it later, I won't read it, but in James 3, 2 and 3, talking about putting a bit in a horse's mouth to control which direction they're going... And in that context, he's talking about the mouth. And he's just simply saying, do you control the words that come out of your mouth? If you don't control the words that come out of your mouth, he's saying, your religion's worthless. Again, from the standpoint of time, I'll just reference a verse. You could look it up later, Luke 6, 43 and 46. It's a familiar text because Jesus is talking about trees and the fruit they produce. Good trees, good fruit. Bad trees, bad fruit. And he says, Good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. So James is just following in those footsteps. He's saying, look, if you don't have a transformed heart, you don't have true religion. And if you have a transformed heart, you're going to have a transformed mouth. We've got to be careful. James puts a lack of control over the tongue and deception together. It's interesting. I was talking to one of the workers, and I was trying to monitor things once I got there to make sure they did what they were being paid to do. And Debbie caught them trying to cut a corner, and I, I don't know that they liked me for the last few hours of the day because they were ready to be done, and I wouldn't let them be done until they did what they were supposed to. But one of them was talking to me the next day because they left some equipment there. They were working around the street and he came back. And as unbelievers are wont to do, he's just, every other word is not publicly speakable in a Sunday school class. 
And he's just going on, and I'm, I'm used to it, and I ignore it. And so anyway, at some, I mentioned to him that I was a pastor. And immediately he transitioned to the Lord's will and what he was doing. And then he went right back to cussing and talking about things. And so it's like, okay. He put on a good front, but at the end of the day, he had no control over those lips. Because his heart wasn't changed. I'm just going to reference the number of verses, and these aren't all of them, but in James, where James is talking about the tongue and what we speak. James 3, 8 to 10. He says, no one can tame the tongue. Restless evil, full of deadly poison. We bless God with it, but then we curse those made in his image with it. James 4, 1 and 2 talks about quarrels, conflicts, fights. James 4, 11, don't speak against one another. Talking about the sinful doings of that. James 5, 9, don't complain. In other words, over and over, James is alluding to the fact that we struggle with our words. All the scriptures make it clear. Don't lie, don't gossip, don't do all these things. And so it's simply an easy way to say, are you a doer of the word? Just record yourself for a day. Think about that. If you were recorded from beginning to end, would your speech sound sanctified? Here's the problem. God hears every word. He's not fooled. He doesn't have to hit rewind. He knows what you said. And James is saying, not that, well, if a word slips out, you're in trouble. No, he's saying, if you don't generally, as the pattern of your life, exercise control over what comes out of your mouth, he says, this man's religion is worthless. It's an exercise in nothing. So the first point, as we'll move quickly through this, Someone who's a doer of the word, you control your tongue. And the second point is this, and this is what I was dwelling on the whole time we were working in Perry. Second point is this, you care for the needy. You care for the needy. Verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Now, it's interesting because he's giving us a definition of what we would want. Pure and undefiled religion. This is religion that pleases God. This is not deception. This is honoring of the Lord. And he's not saying, what do you think it is? He says, in the sight of our God and Father, this is it. This isn't taking a poll to see, well, what do you think is the best religion? What do you think should be a priority? He's just saying, in general, these things please God. This is God's standard. This isn't the vote of a church. This is God himself saying, this is my priority. James is concerned with what God thinks. And again, in this context, prove yourselves doers of the word. He's just saying, this is a way. Now, James isn't saying this is the sum total and this is all it is, but he's just giving some illustrations. Look, you want to worship God in the right way? Here's one. Do you care for the needy? James mentioned specifically orphans and widows. In the context of that time, those were the most vulnerable. In fact, I think they're still the most vulnerable in most places of the world. 
they got nobody to look out for them. An orphan, of course, has no parents. They're isolated. They're ripe for abuse. And a widow, particularly in those contexts, but going back farther and even in today, doesn't have someone, doesn't have a husband to help. Certainly in that context, those were the neediest of the needy. But James was writing to Jewish believers, and this is an emphasis of the Old Testament as well. In other words, God's care for the orphans and widows isn't something new. It didn't just happen when Jesus came. It's always been a concern of God. So, for example, in Exodus 22, 22, it says, You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. Deuteronomy 10.18, he executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Isaiah 10.1, Isaiah's pronouncing woes. Woe to those who enact evil statute and those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights so that the widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. Psalm 68, verses 4 and 5, I'll just allude to verse 5, a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. So all James is doing is reminding hearers that God cares about those who are needy, who are hurting. And specifically in the context of the church, he's saying, look, are you a doer of the word how much do you care about those who God cares about? It's interesting when he uses the term visit, he doesn't mean go and see them at their house. When I was a kid, we used to do these youth group things where we'd go to this orphanage in Georgia. And I don't doubt the orphanage was doing good work, but we didn't do anything. We went and visited. That's not what James is talking about. He's talking about caring for their needs. Certainly there's a place to go and say hello, how are you, and show them love and care. But this is going beyond that of meeting the tangible physical needs that they have. It's interacting with them, not just looking at them. Later in the book, James is the one who says, if you see your brother in need and you say, be warm and be filled, what good's that? Well, here he's telling us that pure and undefiled religion has a concern for the needy, orphans and widows, to care for them, to meet their needs, to deal with their needs. The be warm and be filled is in James 2, 14 to 16. I won't read the whole thing, but that's the section. And unfortunately, one of the things that happens if we're not careful in the church is we think that all those things are for somebody else to do. Part of it is the nature of our government. We have government programs that give handouts for all kinds of people. We have government programs to do things. And I think over the decades, what's happened is the church has pulled back from certain basic, tangible showing of love because now somebody else will take care of it. I'm not saying we have to go out and beat the bush. I'm saying, but when we hear of needs, we need to act on them. I think that's why Lakeside's always had a widow's ministry. Because if the widows need something, we want to meet those needs. We don't see as many orphans, but I'm thankful for those in our church who have been a part of foster care or who have adopted children. 
it's similar, and again, I won't read it for time's sake, but if you read Matthew 25, verses 32 to the end of the chapter, Jesus is talking about the people that he's going to welcome into heaven. And he's not in any way, don't misunderstand, he's not saying you work your way into heaven, of course, but it talks about caring for those who were hungry and who were thirsty and who were naked and were in prison. Again, the issue is not for any of this that we work our way into heaven, but the issue is if God has shown us this mercy and love, then we should tangibly turn around and show it to those that God cares about, the orphans and the widows. I think I've shared it in different contexts before, but I saw some great examples of this when I was a kid. My grandmother ran an entire, just by the force of her personality with a community group, they took over an old motel in Perry, and they would let people stay there, and they'd get them a tank of gas, and they'd make them work to help with the upkeep. But it was tangible care for people that came through town that were hurting, and the other churches knew, refer them there. And it was done because of the love of Christ. So for us, we need to be careful. Part of the issue, knowing my mother-in-law was a widow, it's like, okay, Lord, that's what we're doing. Last Sunday was a good day of worship. We weren't able to go to church, and you can't listen, can't listen to anything when you're working like what we were working. And the sound of the generators drown out any other sound anyway, but I knew the entire time, God, thank you. You're giving us an opportunity to minister to a widow in distress. So, do you care for the needy? Finally, and this will be the very quick point, you keep your life clean. You keep your life clean. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans, widows, and their distress, but also to keep oneself unstained by the world. And this, like so much of Scripture, is just a call to holy living. But it's interesting because in the context... What he's talking about is not getting into trouble. One of the beauties of being a Christian is Romans 8.1. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One of the things I hate about myself is the fact that I still sin. I trust that you hate that about yourself. We know better. We hear these wonderful sermons. We believe we love Jesus. The next thing you know, we're in the mud again. And I praise the Lord that we do have forgiveness if we confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what James is saying is stop before you get there. There are passages that deal with the fact of taking off filth, getting rid of filth. What here is James is saying don't get dirty in the first place. The world has its tentacles out through its philosophies through its government, through its educational system, through its entertainment, through the influences everywhere around us. And James is saying, be careful. As believers, don't get in bed with all of that worldly stuff. It's interesting because if you were to go back to James 1.21, he says, putting aside all filthiness. And there's a sense, in 121, he's saying, get the rest of the dirt off of you. Get it off. Be done with it. And in verse 27, he's saying, don't get back in the dirt. Get rid of it, and then once you're clean, don't climb back in the mud puddle. 
And it really has to do with our view of this world system around us. How much do we hate it? How much do we love it? The world will contaminate us. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16 of 1 John 2. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. In other words, the world is that mud puddle of filth and muck. Don't do it. Stay away from it. He wants us to be careful with what we watch, with what we're exposed to, with what we think about, with what we dwell upon, with what we desire. On and on the ways go. The point is this. If we're doers of the word, we're at least fighting the battle. It was interesting when I was first saved, and many of you have probably had the same experience. Certain sins were very easy to beat. And it's like, I got victory. And now 30 years later, I'm still fighting against things, and it's like, oh, I'm a failure. God understands the difference. But what we have to do is never be content with partly holy. Never be content with, well, that's enough. I'm better than others. To never be content with, well, I only failed a few times. No, we strive to keep ourselves unstained from the world. And all of this is just a reminder of the battle we're fighting in the flesh. And James in these few little verses is just giving us a little measuring stick, so to speak, to remind us what being a doer of the word looks like. Again, it goes far beyond just these few things, but these are a good snapshot of what we're doing. And so I would encourage you, think through these things. If you're struggling with controlling your tongue, ask God for help, repent of it, and begin to find a way to hold yourself accountable. Ask God to hold you accountable. Ask others to hold you accountable. Do you contribute to and care for those who are needy, contributing to the Benevolent Fund? I'm thankful for this class. Whenever I share a need with you, be it from Africa or somewhere else, you guys pounce. Praise the Lord for that. Keep doing that. That's pure and undefiled religion. And again, finally, stay away from the world. Preaching to myself, the world has tentacles. And not all of them look dangerous. In fact, some of them look like they just want to give you a hug. And the next thing you know, it's wrapped around your neck and pulling you away. So I pray this is being encouragement. And I pray that you are a doer of the word. Let me close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercy. Lord, we are a mess. Some days we feel like we're champions for the gospel and some days we feel like utter failures. Lord, I thank you for your work in our hearts. Certainly if there are any here, Lord, who are deceiving themselves, I pray that you'll open their eyes and that they'll come out of deception and repent and believe. But Lord, I, I think most of my brothers and sisters here are brothers and sisters in Christ who, like me, struggle to do the things you've called us to do. So remind us, Lord, of the need to watch over our words. Remind us, Lord, to 
have eyes not just for our own needs, but for those around us who are hurting and in need. And Lord, help us to not be attracted to this world and all its enticements and lusts and sins. Lord, help us remain unstained. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace and love. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all, and I look forward to seeing you next week, hopefully next week, back in Second Peter.